Hi there, my name is Liam Bishop and this is my Interviews with Writers series. For the first one, I spoke to the writer Gare Holmes about her poetry and also her story that is featured in Comma Press's Resist Anthology. Gare started us off with a reading. Before that, I must warn you that there are a couple of instances of strong language in the excerpt. 158. Self-exposure to the elements. 173. Non-violent occupation. It's my twelfth day here, and the fires aren't as bright as they were when I arrived. All the tunes the penny whistler plays seem to be in a minor key. Down in the communal bender, a heavy sense of despondence lingers in the air along with the smell of our eternal cabbage stew. So many of our camps have been cleared. All day the yellow jackets burn the butchered trees in huge pyres whose thick smoke makes us and the security guards cough up blood. No one's saying it, but we all know that we're not going to stop them building the road, and now our job is merely to delay the inevitable. I don't think that's enough of a reason to stay for some people. Every day, two or three protesters leave, scrape the mud off their boots and go back to their other lives. For some, this has become their only life, and it's a hard one. It's not all happy prussicking and birdsong. It's damp and cold. Constant shivering, bluing fingers, running noses. It's waking up to a frozen water bottle and frosted blankets. It's thin soup and pot noodles and flapjack and not enough proper food. It's wet socks and trench foot, pneumonia, scabies, lice and impetigo. It's donga belly, the shit pit, rope burns, bruises. It's being called a effing dosser and holding your tongue. It's smiling at the cameras, being polite, trying to keep your knuckles slack, trying to keep it fluffy when you want to kick and bite the bloke that's dragging you through the mud. It's hoping the rope won't snap. The harness will hold, the clips won't buckle. It's trusting the police won't trample you under the horses. Trusting the bailiffs won't cut the walkway with you on it. So, uh, Gaia, this is a fantastic publication. Uh, you share the pages with some brilliant writers such as Ellie Williams, Camilla Shamsi, Luan Goldie, and Much Like Protest, also published by Comma. This anthology also focuses on significant protests and uprisings in British history. So before we talk in detail about your story, why did you choose to write about the Newbury Bypass protests of 1996? I thought that was the one I could engage with most. Um, I actually wanted to write about Greenham Common, but it had been done already. Uh, my mum was at Greenham Common, and there is a connection between Greenham Common and Newbury Bypass, because when the road was finally made, a lot of the aggregate they used was from the runway from Greenham Common. So bits of Greenham Common went into Newbury by Bypass. And um, yeah, just trees. I mean, it sounds a bit wishy-washy, but I've done lots of protests in sort of to protect land. And there's been, you might have even heard of it in Halifax. There was a place called Milneroy, and it was a nature reserve. It's on a floodplain, but um, they wanted to build new houses on it and new roads. My family had an allotment there, so I was campaigning there, and a few other protests up at um, Pressmen Woods in Scotland. And I also knew quite a lot of people that had been to Newbury. Of, um, and I just thought, I'm not, I've been brought up in a very political manner. I've been, my parents are highly political, um, but 
I'm sort of, my mum's always saying, why do you write something political? I found that this was the most, when I could connect to most on a personal level. And also I just, I used to live on a, I'm, I keep pointing, but it's no good, is it? Um, I used to live about 10 minutes away from here on a terraced street. And it was really no plants or anything. Loads of people were exchanging drugs at the corner shop and there were no trees there. And then I moved here, which is, I've mentioned, it's like a crumbling mansion. I feel like a fluke because I'm in this pocket of green and I'm, I'm above the tree line. So when I look out, I'm level with the trees and I hear the birds and I see these trees and it's just beautiful. So trees have been on my mind since I've moved here. So your mother was part of the Greenham Common protest? Yeah. Um, we'll talk about this. There's a significance with that in the story, isn't there? Yeah. When this anthology was being put together, how did you become involved with it, and what did resist provoking you? Did you immediately go to the Newbury bypass protests? No, we had a. a, a I'm usually a poet. This is the first uh, short fiction project that I've I've embarked on seriously, and um, I publish. I think maybe some of the poems in where the road runs out, there's one about the Chilean miners trapped down the mine, I think my publisher thought, right, okay, this is quite, got quite a strong narrative and it was about something political in a way. And so he asked me if I'd be interested in writing a, a story for this. And we, we all got, there's a list you could choose from. I looked through and I toyed with a few ideas, but Newby Bypass, as I say, I've got, I've got connections to, to that. So that's why I chose it. So it's a list of the protests. Yes. Because these protests span, you know, as we said, they span right across uh, history. And there's a distance, isn't there? Because you live up here in Halifax and you've talked about the trees and it's maybe worth sort of recounting some of the statistics about uh, the Newbury Bypass protests. So I understand it was called mm. the Third... Third Battle of Newbury. The Third Battle of Newbury mm. due to its connections with... Um, the Civil War. Uh, yeah, the Civil War. Uh, and I know Newbury, uh, so it's quite a, it's a market town, uh, has a horse mm. racing venue there. And it's quite interesting how it's, we'd associate with quite a wealthy kind of area in Berkshire. Mm. But that connection you talked about with the trees, 10,000 trees were planned to be cut down to aid yeah. the bottleneck on the A34 that bypasses mm. Newbury in Berkshire. The sheer sort of scale of it, were these figures a sort of the shocking thing at the time or was it more to do with the kind of connection to the area and the protest? Uh, it was nine miles, which is a massive amount of, of it's, it's a long distance. Um, just the thought of looking, I suppose again, it sounds like a movie cell centre, but looking out my window, nine, if nine miles of that disappeared, I would really feel it. And it was unnecessary, really. I think they say that it's made about 20 seconds difference, the bypass added. And yeah, it was beautiful land, woodlands. And one of the things that nearly that held up the, the destruction for a while was a, a rare snail. I don't know if you heard about that. No, there was this rare species of snail, um, I can't quite remember, which held it up because it was a protected species. And I think it held it up for about two or three days, this particular snail. And there's amazing footage of like all of the cordoned off area where there's this snail 
and then the police saw no it wouldn't be the police it was some environmental people came and carefully removed this snail from the area in a tupperware and took it elsewhere but yeah there, there are lots of species that were damaged and and the trees the birds were nesting at the time when they i think it's may when it finally happened the final destruction um, Ironically, uh, a snail holds up uh, the construction of a road that has been, uh, you know, forming a bottleneck. You know, this development of this 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 road. Mm, well. yeah, so, yeah. So let's talk a bit more about your actual story. Then, writers choose to tackle the different protests, different moments in history, in different ways and styles. Some are written in the moment. Some are written as we follow the characters into the protest or witnessing the protest. And some are written in the future where characters are reflecting on either their own or family members' involvement in the protest. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about this particular aspect because the narrator claims to have been taken to protest throughout her youth by her mother. Her mother was also involved in the Greenham Common protests, which was led by the Women for Life on Earth against the storage of nuclear weapons at RAF Greenham Common in Berkshire. Why did you choose this backdrop to your story? I think a few minutes ago you asked me what did I think of when the term resist came and uh, I was, I've always been quite shy and my mum's been trying to sort of empower me and I remember her telling me about Greenham Common and the action that the women took and one of the most effective things was masses of these women all keening like wailing and that absolutely freaked the soldiers out and something so simple such a basic thing can have such an effect and that's stuck in my head that's stuck in my head for years and just also my mum saying there's a poem by Marge Pearcy can I just read you three lines of it um, a strong woman is a woman who loves strongly and weeps strongly and is strongly terrified and has strong needs a strong woman is strong in words, in action, in connection, in feeling. So that sort of weaves itself through the narrative, I think, this idea of strength, um, but being strong in your fear as well, being strong in your strength. Because mm. like, it's a refrain, isn't it, by the mother? You, you are stronger than you think you are. Mm. And I guess it's sort of balanced throughout the story, how much a mother's sort of pushing her maybe to go into this mm. protest but it's also something that's potentially welcomed in a sense by you and you writing this story about this character often you don't realize quite what you've done when you've written a story but certain things you've been saying i thought oh god it's, it is very close i didn't see it but um, it's almost like an autobiography it's like no i wasn't trying to do that so but yeah there is a lot of grief in this story and she claims that, that the protagonist claims she's doing this for Stella but she is doing it for herself and for her mother and she's doing it to get rid of the, the grief and she's doing it because she wants to overcome the grief and being up a tree in a very fragile vulnerable situation is a form of limbo which grief too is a form of limbo which can sometimes be overcome but often it's not it's just you're just there up that tree wobbling and wobbling and wait and see what happens, whether you fall, whether you're carried out of it, or whether you drift off into the effort. And I think this feeds nicely into the voice of the story. Mm. And you said, you know, it's not a form of 
autobiography. But at the same time, it feels quite close to an experience. Mm. And I was wondering as I read this, is it the experience of being involved in this particular protest? Or is it being involved with some of the emotions that the narrator experiences? And what makes it so distinctive story, uh, 198 Methods of NVDA, is the story's voice. And it's written in the first person. And it's almost about a narrator trying to find her voice, perhaps through this protest, as you said, and perhaps a way of negotiating some of the feelings about protesting within her family. I did a heck of a lot of research. So I was basically metaphorically up the trees for a month, just reading as much as I could. What was a brilliant film, Tales of Resistance by Jamie Lowe. It's fantastic. And it's about 100 hours of footage that's all been blended together. And it's, from, it's mainly from the protesters perspective, but you get a really good idea of who was there because they weren't, the protesters weren't all crusties or there were the people from all different walks of life there were doctors and lawyers there were a lot of the villagers of Newbury who as you mentioned it's quite a it was in those times quite a prestigious area so this film interviews lots of these people and there's also a book by a guy it's called Nine Miles and it's by Jim Hindle and he was he went to several of these tree um, road protests and it's it's about his two winters he spent at Newbury and I think it was Fairmile, the emotional effect it had on him was when you're constantly on edge and you're constantly thinking you're going to come with the chainsaws, that's a lot to go through and he, I think he had a breakdown, well he did, he had a breakdown, so I was reading that and also I was able to access, anybody's able to access the logs from the, I think they would have been walkie-talkies in those days, so you can see the conversations that were going, so I was really right in there. I, I did feel like I wasn't living my own life. I was just in this world of Newbury up the trees. The protagonist, she moves to the camp and she climbs a tree, as you said, and inhabits the tree as many of these protesters did. And like you said, they were from all walks of life. But they were literally sat in these trees for days, hours on end. They built their homes in there to an extent. They built tree houses. And it's really interesting then how you weave this into the story as well. As you said, it's, you get the sense that this is meticulously kind of research and you get the sense that it is, there's something quite real life about this as well. And it doesn't seem to come from this sense that you were you know, climbing these trees, but a kind of combination of this love for the trees, the kind of view mm -hmm. outside your window where you work as you were writing this story and the immersion mm -hmm. in the research for writing this story. And it becomes quite a symbolic experience as well, like you said, a kind of sense of limbo. And one thing I noticed about this was, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that listing seems quite an important thing to the narrator. So she lists, as we said, what she's fearful of in the opening of the story. She lists the supplies she has, and the supplies that her mother has given her for her to go to these protests. And the story is named after a list itself, 198 Methods of Nonviolent Action. So why did you choose to name the story after this book, this particular list, before we look more at the significance of this idea of listing? I came across a list and it sort of amused me at first. And I'm thinking, how can, how can humming be a form of protest? 
And I looked at the list and I started thinking little actions like boycotting certain products. These little things can be have a great effect. And it's just it's a comprehensive list. Yeah, it's 198 methods and stuff like speakings and sittings and prayings. And thought, yeah, you know, we don't we don't need to run and throw bricks at a building or shout. Although in the story, she she, she has that primal scream. Boycotting the products and things like that. That's advised in. In the, one of the sections, um, and there's yeah, boycotts, student strikes, stay at home, all these different methods of non-violent action. So in fact, this is like a, a spine. It gave it some structure um, for the story, and it, it helped me a lot because I do tend to, with my poetry, I do tend to write a lot of lists, and I was trying to get away from this list writing, but I just couldn't help it. And then this was a way of harbouring and taming my list writing and making it useful. So. And it also gave me structure. Yeah, I was going to ask if your poetry influenced you in that respect, because it imposes this quite rhythmical and recursive quality onto mm. your prose. And what it seems to do is it gives the story a quite a processional quality, as though she is caught in limbo, watching mm. things at a distance to her, watching things that could be happening below her as she sits in this tree. And you've talked about grief and this mm. idea of being in a sort of limbo. And it's not only an important theme in this story about the protests, but in your poetry as well, mm. uh, particularly in your latest collection, Where the Road Runs Out, which is also published by Comma. So before we go into the actual poetry itself, the title of this collection refers to another road, and you use that idea to talk again about grief. You're trying to write a story as well about a road preventing it from being built. So were these poems and these stories, bearing in mind what we said about this idea of limbo and listing, were these poems and stories written in the same psychological space or same period of time? I hadn't actually made the connection until you mentioned it. And I was thinking, oh, God, yeah, of course. In a similar similar time, I suppose, but I thought I'd got, I thought I'd got over the road running out and then I'm back with the roads again, trying to stop this road being built. So I don't know what psychologists say about that, but I am aware of being in the similar realm when I was working on the story. So Does it come back to the trees then, and this idea of family perhaps? Does the story or the... We don't know if Stella's a relation or not. And again, in, in Where the Road Runs Out, you address what appears to be a male figure quite often. Yeah. And I just wonder if this idea of grief relates to quite a global concern in the world because what you managed to do is you make it quite again a global concern about the trees mm -hmm. and the environment then also quite personal to this narrator of this story as well there's quite a lot of ambiguity in the story because i i didn't want to specify what the relationship was i like people to come to their own conclusions and I didn't want to ram things down the throat of the readers, like, this is what's happening to the planet if we don't protect the trees, this is what's going to happen. And I, I try to avoid doing that in poetry as well, where I can, as much as I can, which is quite difficult. A good poem and a good story often gives the reader a lot of space to make their own images and ideas and their own opinions. So. Well, I wonder if this is why the anthology is so effective, and I wonder why your story is so effective as well, perhaps because it is modes like the short story, modes like poetry that don't give us definite answers and indeed create that sense of space and incompleteness, perhaps. Perhaps incompleteness isn't the right word, but 
without a firm sense of resolution. And I wonder if that is what makes or partly makes this such a powerful story and indeed a powerful collection as well. Because I think, I wonder if there's a sense with your story and your poetry that, and perhaps that ties in with grief, that its effects are felt over a long period of time. And it's something that sort of forms on us as we move through life. Mm, Yeah, definitely. To talk a bit more about your poetry then, what I really found interesting about it was the idea of thisness. And this, Mm. T-H-I-S, just clarify that if I sound particularly northern. Um, This seemed to be a really important word for you because you seem to be often trying to understand what constitutes a thing, what constitutes Mm. this. And indeed, Mm. before all this is a poem in the collection Where the Road Runs Out, that seems to lament a time that is no longer with us. Mm. And as you're about to read for us now. Before all this. Before all this, there were phone calls, there were letters, there were postcards, there were badly printed posters in corner shop windows, there were crowded notice boards, there was proper conversation. There were names and numbers written in tipsy scrawl on the peeled off backs of beer mats, there was ink, there was paper, there were crossings out. Before all this, we clung to the folklore of magpies and sunsets. We read the weather in seaweed and common sense. We all carried umbrellas. We did not know how to edit our lives, walked out roaring to the world every morning. We placed our faith in roadmaps and sometimes we got lost. Sometimes we found beauty in the detour. Sometimes we were late. Before all this, no one was really bothered about what Jodie or Sandra or David had for breakfast. No one took photos of their dinners. No one took photos of their bruises. No one took photos of the pulpy gore the cat dragged in, the rising damp, the mouldy fruit, the dead wasp on the windowsill, the traffic jam, the stains on a travelodge bedsheet. Before all this, our smiles were never sepia or Polaroid. We had scars and gaps and cracks, and we were more honest. We knew how to read the language of the body, We knew about patience, the beauty of waiting. Before all this, we had manners. We looked, we listened, we never stroked our phones. Before all this, if you wanted to see a blood moon, a harvest moon, a shooting star, we'd step outside, we'd live in it. Before all this, snow and autumn leaves came without a hashtag. We did not need an app for relaxation or meditation. We did not need an app for empathy or humanity. There were things we knew how to do with instruction and we did them well. We did good things for the goodness of doing them and not for the ticks, the gain, the glowing kudos. Before all this, validation was more than a click. Liking came from our lips, love came with flesh. Some parts of us were secret, some parts of us were never shared, some parts of us were never spoken. The lament seems to come from a sense that we cannot hold on to things, even when we might want to, Mm. and even when we think we might need to. And in 198 Methods of NVDA, your character is not suspended in air, but suspended in emotion and motion, Mm. it seems. 
And I don't know if it's related then to this idea of grief and this sense of the trees holding onto things mm. that we feel like we need to. Did those themes combine for you writing this story? Yes, I think they did. And I think a lot of the, uh, going to the poems, in, in the short story, there's a thing about this lack, this whole, this absence that's stellar and this, this lack of confidence that the woman, the protagonist has. And she's pushing herself in order to make herself whole, I think. But we don't know if she does. So yeah, there's a, a searching for resolution in, in, in everything and there's this sense of lack, a, a strong sense of lack and a hunt for, for this, what, what is this, when all this is over. And as you say, a lot of the poems refer to this idea of this thing that can never be quite um, described, I think. Well, it's really interesting, actually, because you said then about this idea of holes and you play mm. often on that quite playfully. But it does reflect this kind of sense of absence, but also how absence can potentially be what makes us or part of us that makes us whole in a way. And there's mm. a poem called The Whole Room where mm. you explicitly play on this idea of holes and mm. holes. What does absence represent to you maybe and how does that come in from perhaps these trees that might be lost and how does it might tie in with loss? I think with the trees thing for, for the protagonist, again, it's trying to resolve this lack and a, a general, explicitly a lack, trees put down as a, a distinct lack, there's a gap, there's a hole that we have to edge around, but there's like a hole in the psyche, I suppose. When you say a hole yeah. in the psyche then, is that a, mm. like a, an absence, a vacancy, or I don't know, something else? I'm thinking about mass empathy, no, it's not mass empathy, mass consciousness. Most, in fact, probably all of us are affected by mass consciousness in some way. We feel something, we don't know what it is. It's bound to, it's bound to affect you. If you go into a room and there's a strange atmosphere just in a, a room, most of us will pick up on this atmosphere. Things are happening all over the world. It's like the shockwave and you can, you can feel the pain and the horror. So we'll move towards the ending of the story and you've hinted towards it as we've spoken. But... As we do move to the close, your character must confront the character in 198 Methods of NVDA. Mm -hmm. She must confront what most of the other protesters eventually must, which is coming down from the tree. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now that was either going to be via their volition or they were either going to be dragged or taken down from these trees. Mm -hmm. These could be rather dangerous and fretful moments for the protesters. Yeah. And you devote a some space to talk about that in the story. But you refrain from making a sweeping political statement, as you said, and the intention isn't to kind of round down this political message. So when you were doing your research about this, how did this sit with you, this particular moment, before you wove it into the story? I was, again, I went, I watched a lot of films on, on I watched that film, the one that I mentioned, and lots of films on YouTube. And it was really upsetting and frightening. And suddenly the tree hadn't just, was more than a tree for these protesters. They'd spent so much time at a particular tree that it would it'd become part of them to protect something so ferociously for, for weeks and weeks. Um, yeah, it was very emotional. And the point in the story where we end, just before then, this mass outburst of emotion which manifests itself in this, this scream, which is like one of the, the mass keening from Green and Commonwealth in the screen. That, that comes out and it's just like she can't really express anything. This is how she has to express herself with this scream and that's all she can do. Um, the fear of being brought down but wanting to be brought down at the same time, I think. Wanting well, to be grounded. Because you talk about 
composure. And all the way through, she has this sense of composure. She speaks politely to the climber who comes up to try and take her down. And I understand this was quite an actual uh, approach that the protesters took uh, when they were confronted by the authorities. So to come to that final scene, I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but it gives it, it's a really powerful and hypnotic ending. And it really strikes a contrast between this person who has been in this tree, potentially grieving, involved in this protest, who must come down. And that idea of being grounded, why was this ending? And I don't want to kind of say the ending in case you don't want to give too much away, but why was the ending so important that it ended like that? I wanted to just, I mean, she's still up there. (laughs) She's still up in the tree um, somewhere in in the back of my mind. I just wanted to leave it like that. Um, I don't know if it was triumphant. Well, it was triumphant. It was a triumphant note, but I wanted to leave it with a a piece of human power that was just the power of the voice and the power of screaming and a very simple ending. Well, it's beyond words, isn't it? She has moved Mm. beyond expressing and articulating perhaps what this experience has meant. And she's encouraged to do this scream by her mother in the car. There was another thing that my mum had. This is tying in with, I think the mother was obviously, the mother in the story was obviously very similar to my own mother. But there was a a thought about this phrase quite a lot. Silence is the door to consent. But silence can be powerful. So it's kind of, I I don't know whether I agree, but at the time I thought, yeah, so making a noise has this power. She is, this is the thing, isn't it? There's a, about the idea of protest. It's about the body as well. It's about being Mm -hmm. there and it's about, and it's an incredibly contemporary issue as we speak at this moment with uh, everything that's happening in Mm -hmm. America. But it's about your body as much as it's about your voice and what you say. And this is the thing, again, about how you write the story. You create this sense of being in the body, but also Mm -hmm. being out of the body feels like we're watching events happen to her but it's her language and it's her very much internal language so there's always this kind of irony and this juxtaposition and when she does scream she's reporting on her own scream there was actually a, a commune it was a really i, I don't know if you've heard of it but there's this group that were called the screamers and they were they're all it was it didn't quite work out but they, they had this um this commune somewhere in the country and the, again the documentary about it, and they just screamed it was primal screaming primal scream so, i mean this screaming is an act of letting go and you can let go so far that you can't get back i think with the case of the, the cult of screamers never got quite back to this world there is a therapeutic idea in this idea of screaming because it well it is important for the green and common protests or they i don't know if they scream so much but they did this kind of Keening, yeah. yeah. It's an Irish word and it's sort of the, the banshees would keen when somebody died. It's like a, it's a wailing, a, a, a mourning, again, keening. So, um, and the women at Greenham were trying to make these sounds of this keening noise. And it would have hurt your ears, it would have got right to your, to your heart if you'd have heard all these women in this strange keening. I understand reading about these, uh, the Greenham Common Protest, is that. They were women and they were keening, confronted by the authorities, which mm. I imagine was majority of men, majority of men in uniforms and, yeah. you know, with the recourse to use physicality. But reports that it really did unnerve these men, this act of keening. 
And there's something in that. And like you said, we talk about the sense of silence that she has, but she mm-hmm. sort of finds this power and this strength through this act of screaming. You talk about um, holes and she sort of confronts, you know, this sort of absence and scream. And I don't know if it, it kind of goes back to staring into a kind of abyss maybe or staring into something mm-hmm. that you can't quite confront and it becomes quite traumatic. Yeah. And it is quite a mournful thing as well, as you said. Yeah, I think she's trying to move away from the whole of the absence of this stellar character. So I think maybe she certainly accomplishes, she affects the, well, we don't know, I can't because the story ends there, isn't it? But again, in my head, she causes some, she makes a, a difference. The climbers were, I think it was about three different kinds of people. There were the security guards, and then there were the, no, the, the actual people that were chopping down the trees, then there were security guards. So they'd send up the security guards first, and they were generally okay, they were, but then they hired some climbers from Sheffield, and they really didn't give a damn break bones and not lots of bones but they got paid a great amount of money and in fact the Sheffield Climbing Association uh, excluded them from the Sheffield Climbing Association because they didn't agree with what they were doing and some of the climbers would switch sides so they'd be up there trying to evict these people from trees trying to forcibly remove them and then they'd maybe talk to some of the protesters again a form of non-violent direct action and they'd change sides and it was good having the climbers on their side because they knew all about the climbing techniques and yeah but the, the climbers were um there's quite a famous image from the protest of a tree and there's a woman sat at the top of the tree but mm. all the branches below yeah. have been stripped away and cut away apparently the sheriff of berkshire his justification for doing this was they removed the branches below the protesters so that if they did fall it would be a clean fall <laughs> which is just <laughs> That image, um, I think I had it on. There were about four or five images, including that one of the, the, the tree. And I think that's the one I focused on. I think that's the one I had in my head when I was writing the story about that. Because it's a really tall tree, isn't it? And it's just this woman at the top, and I think it's, again, limbo precarious, so precarious up there. Because um, mm. the picture's in black and white, isn't it? Yeah. And it's just yeah. a row, it's taken from a distance, and there's a row of people, sort of, and there's just this bare sort of tree with mm. this body just at, at yeah. the top real pleasure reading your work and um, finding out more about the protests and finding out more about your work and having the opportunity to interview as well okay all right um, I I bid you farewell you can buy the resist anthology that includes gay's story amongst many others as well as an accompanying essay on each story by a historian from comma press's website there you'll also find gay's two most recent poetry collections I'm Liam Bishop. You can follow me, if you like, on Twitter, at Liam H. Bishop. And join me next time when I'll be speaking to the writer, Thomas Chadwick.